How long can we live? Uh, New York Times had an article by that title, and it began like this. In 1990, Jean-Louis Robin and Michal Allard were conducting a nationwide study of French centenarians. Unexpectedly, their software program spat out an error message. An individual in the study was marked as 115 years old, a number outside the range of age values. As it turned out, the program had a problem, not Jean Calmont, a 100-year-old it was tracking. And she became the object of an intense study, uh, the emblem of an ongoing quest to answer one of history's most controversial questions, and it's this. What exactly is the limit on the human lifespan? Jean lived to be 122 years old. Now, there are two camps when it comes to answering this question, the pessimists and the optimists. The pessimists say that lifespan is like a wick on a candle. It's only so long, and when it burns down, it's curtains. Optimists rather see life as like a rubber band. Uh, as science progresses, they think we'll be able to live longer and longer lives, maybe 125 years or 150. Some have even posited the possibility of 200 years. Well, whatever your personal opinion on lifespan, as Christians, we are stewards of every day and every moment that the Lord gives to us. And for his sake, don't we want to be able to say, I made the best use of the time he gave me today. And as he gives me more days, the best use of those times and those days. Well, today's topic is a reflection on the transience of life. And it contemplates life under God's wrath and the need to live before God rightly. We're looking at Psalm 90, verses 1 through 70, 17. Uh, Psalm 90, if you have a Bible, please turn to it. Now, this psalm is divided in three parts. There's a song, there's a lament, and then there's prayer. And we're going to look at them in that order, and when we finish, then we'll ask the question, what's the author doing here? What life change does he want to see in you as a result of this passage? You'll notice that the title is A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. So Psalm 90 is one of the oldest and Moses is likely the first composer of a sacred hymn. So please look at verses 1 and 2, a hymn. Sing, why? Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
God is worth our very best songs. He's Lord. He's the commander of the armies of heaven and earth. He's the absolute ruler over all things. He's his people's oasis today and through all generations. Now, there's no mention of love here, but that idea is certainly implied. Can you see God's fatherly care? It says, before the mountains were brought forth. That is, before you brought to birth the mountains, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, that is, or ever you had labored as in childbirth to make the earth and the world, you are God. We are directed in this song to give him our praise. Now, by contrast, consider the Canaanites, Israel's pagan neighbors. They worshipped a god they called El, E-L. They said that he was the father of the gods, but according to legend, his son Baal had gradually taken over his supremacy. This praise song paints a different picture. There's no God other than the Lord. He's really the master over all things and over all time. He's eternal and a place of safety for his own. And he is worthy of us lifting up our voices and singing. Debbie recently was sent a picture. And uh, it was taken with her and a number of other people. And she says, oh, look at this picture. Now, uh, frankly, I wasn't very interested in it. <laughs> but I didn't tell her that. <laughs> but she was very interested. And she studied it and studied it. And I thought, isn't that the way it is when we value something? We want to look at it. We want to see the details. And isn't it like that when we have a love relationship with the Lord? We want to see him. We enjoy being in his presence. We want to look over all the details of his character and just kind of savor them. God is worth our best singing. That's the force of verses 1 and 2. Now, in the next 10 verses, there's kind of a shift in gears. We move from song to lament. What do we mean by lament? Well, here are a few synonyms. Bemoan, bewail, cry, moan, sob, Wail. Did you know that lamenting is a biblical practice? It's laid out before us as something that the people of God do. But you see, in our don't worry, be happy culture, um, there is significant pressure that I come across to myself and to you as having it all together. No worries. I got it together. And um, there's pressure to name drop and to 
find not so subtle ways to call attention to myself and my perceived accomplishments. So Christians can and often do overlook the practice of lamenting. It's so important that about a third of the Psalms feature these minor key songs. And did you know there's a whole book in the Bible on the subject, and its title is Lamentations, yeah. Well, here are uh, three ways that have been helpful to me in thinking about lamenting. Lamenting offers an opportunity for me to be transparent with the Lord. At the deepest levels of my suffering, no glossing over things, I can just pour out my heart to him. And it moves me away from the false notion that I am somehow capable of successfully managing life all by myself without reference to God. When I come to the end of myself, I have to admit I'm confused and broken and don't know which way to turn. And then as with this particular psalm, lamenting gives God's people a common language with which to acknowledge and express their distress. Now, we want to say to ourselves in lamenting, a person has to have a certain degree of uh, self-awareness, a willingness to look below the waterline of his life. He has to be willing to acknowledge his pain and his emptiness and his anxiety. So let's look at this uh, lament, and th there are uh, five characteristics uh, of living in a fallen world that are lamentable, and we'll tick down through them. At least that's what popped out at me. See if, see if this makes sense to you. First of all, man is temporal. Uh, our lives are bounded by time. We're finite. Uh, our original composition is dust, and we're going to return to that. We're subject to the righteous wrath of God. So look at verse 3. What does it say? You, God, return man to dust. You say, return, O children of men. Death is the great equalizer. Rich and poor, famous and obscure, intellectual and illiterate, humanitarian and criminal, all of us are going to die unless the Lord returns first. This week I conducted a funeral and I couldn't help but notice acres and acres of marked graves. Numbers of people that I once knew and loved are buried there. Row upon row, Stone markers are silent reminders that life is temporal. And in addition to that, man's life, uh, lifespan is brief. Look at verse 4. A thousand years are as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. And so here Moses contrasts God's perspective with a human vantage point. Everything in God's 
eyes is either smaller in size or shorter in time. One example, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. One commentator has put it like this. A long, full life seems like an eternity when we are young, but time marches on at warp speed. One Sunday, a little eight-year-old girl came into the hospital in Mesa, Arizona. She was not doing well, and within a short time, about 30 minutes, she was gone. She was gone despite the anguished wails of her mother. And eight years seems much too short a life. In contrast, both my mom and dad lived into their 90s. Now they're gone. But I'll tell you, as I think about their lives, 90 plus years seems short. I wish they were still around. Which is all to say, man's lifespan is brief. Next, look at verses 5 and 6. Man's death is swift. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Moses here uses three metaphors. Raging floodwaters, vanishing dreams, withering grass. Albert suffered with pulmonary hypertension. Penn Medical Center did all they could to increase his oxygen intake without success. There were no other options. And so Albert finally said, I just want to go home. I want to go home, have hospice come, and I can die there. Hospital made special transport arrangements. He arrived late last Saturday afternoon, was wheeled into the house, and died in minutes. Death is swift. And now look at verses 7 through 9. God's judgment is just. We are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Life is lamentable because we are sinners and we live under God's wrath. Moses and the children of Israel lived Intense for 40 years while they traveled through the wilderness. They lived in a permanent state of flux, but had two constant experiences. Packing their tents and attending funerals. An entire generation perished in the desert because of sin. And it's as if the Lord wouldn't allow the Israelites to forget their idolatry, their rebellion, their immorality, and their murmuring. And based on what Moses says here, 
Israel lived under a death sentence at the end of their lives. All they could do was sigh with a sense of sadness and emptiness as they drew their last breath. Their circumstances were daily reminders of God's judgment for what they had done. And then finally, verses 10 through 12, please notice our lives are short. The, day, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their, strength, uh, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? We are terminal because of God's righteous curse on our sin. Yet, people don't really understand God's anger. These verses shout loudly and clearly, time is not a commodity to waste. We have only so much of it. Once it's gone, we don't get it back. So first there's a praise song. Then there are these words of lament, this moaning, this crying over the transience of life. There is reason to cry. There is reason to moan. There is reason to groan. And the question is, what do we do with our mortality? God's answer is pray. God's answer is pray. Look at verses 13 and following. The necessary response to life's brevity is to seek the Lord and to move toward him, to cry out to him in prayer. And so Moses directs us to that end here. First of all, prayer is essential, so pray for mercy. Look at verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us early in the morning with your steadfast love, that me, we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Israel had suffered under God's chastening hand for a long time, and Moses wonders if there's ever going to be an end to it. What will happen to God's covenant promises? So Moses prays for God's return to his people based on his stated covenant commitment. Prayer is essential. Pray for mercy. Please, Lord, don't give me what I deserve. Please, Lord, don't give me over to my sins. Prayer is essential. Pray also for joy. Verse 15. Make us glad for the many days you've afflicted us and for the many years as we have seen evil. God's people had suffered because of their sin. They longed for restoration to joy, but in order for restoration to take place, what else would have to happen? Forgiveness. Reconciliation comes through forgiveness. Forgiveness brings fellowship with God and the reversal from sadness to gladness. Prayer is essential. Pray for mercy. Pray for joy. And now, 
verses 16 and 17, pray for blessing. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Uh, we can think about Israel's wilderness wanderings as something like a 40-year exercise in circular futility. However, it created in them a desire. Lord, get us to the promised land. Deliver us from this. And so Moses prays that God will do his work and manifest his glory in the midst of people. So, a praise song, a lament, and prayer. Where do we go with this? Don't we really see God's call on our lives in verses 10 through 12? What do they say? We are told to implore God. Teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Wisdom in the Bible is skill at living a godly life. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. In a lamentable world, seek the face of God and ask him for skill in living a life that pleases him. As you may know, the first slave ship arrived on American coast in 1619, a year before the pilgrims landed in Plymouth. The physical demands, the horrific treatment that marked the life of slaves is unspeakable. In addition, they faced enormous problems in practicing their faith. Plantation owners refused to allow them to gather for worship. They were afraid the slaves might then want to be free. So they met secretly in what were called hush arbors. That is, worship services that took place in the woods or in swamps. And these realities led Christian slaves to lament their situation and to cry out to God. Separated from their families, they were orphans with unfathomable sadness of heart and songs of lament then sprang up within these slave communities. For example, sometimes I feel like a motherless child a long way from home or nobody knows the trouble I see or steal away to Jesus or swing low, sweet chariot, coming to carry me home. Now, what are we to say about their godly responses expressed in those songs during their times of lamentation? Aren't they emulating the Lord Jesus? Aren't they following in his footsteps?
think about how Jesus lived life. He came to seek and to save the lost. He gave up his life for that grand and wonderful act of sacrifice. But Jesus also lived to obey his Father. Uh, you know, in John chapter 17, he says, I've done all that you've asked me to do. And he also prays. He laments the ravages of sin, but he also prays to move toward the Lord more closely. What's an example? How about when he's there in the Garden of Gethsemane? He prays, as it were, drops of blood. And he says, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And remember how he weeps over Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets, how often would I gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And think about his abandonment on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? Out of Jesus' suffering and death comes resurrection victory. And he has redeemed you so that you would move toward him. And so we're told in this psalm, teach us, it's a command, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Lord, move in my life. Make me more like yourself. Help me to move toward you with my brokenness and my suffering. He's redeemed you so that you would move toward him and he's calling you to ask him to give you and to keep on giving you skill at living a godly life. So here's the point. As you begin a new week, you're not alone. Jesus is your Savior. You've been given the Holy Spirit. He's at work in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. And so seek the face of God. Jesus will answer that prayer because he is committed to making you like himself. He is committed to enable you to live a life where you experience more and more skill at living a righteous life. Let's thank him for it. Lord, we thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that as we think about this psalm with its many laments, we have one who has lived perfectly before you, perfectly fulfilling the demands of this psalm to number his days and apply his heart unto wisdom. And thank you that he is at work in us now. Help us to live out of the confidence that you will shape us to be more like him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.